Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 533. And we've got a good one for you this week, a really interesting one. I'm talking about psychedelics with Andy Mitchell. Andy Mitchell is the author of 10 Trips, The New Reality of Psychedelics, a book in which he took 10 different hallucinogenics in 10 different scenarios or situations. And it's fascinating. Andy is a neuropsychologist. And yeah, his journey into all of this has been fascinating. A lot of you will know that I've had experiences with different drugs over the years. I co-hosted an award-winning podcast called Say Why to Drugs with Dr. Susie Gage, which went on to be um, a book as well. So if you're not familiar with them, check the podcast out, check the book out. They're great as well. But yeah, Andy's 10 Trips book came out last week and it's honestly, it's fascinating. I think you're going to really enjoy this chat. I was excited to get a few moments with the guy and I'm going to let you hear all of it. It might not be what you think either. It's interesting. It's interesting. His his opinion isn't as cut and dry as you may expect on these things. So that's why I was excited to talk to him because it's not just a, oh, drugs are bad or all drugs are great. Really interesting chat. Um, we're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's the best way to support the podcast and your friendly neighbourhood podcaster, me. All sorts of good merch over there for all weathers. You can also follow me on twitch.tv forward slash scroobiuspipio. I've been doing some fun st- stuff over there r- recently. If you're into the music stuff, you can watch. There's full l- l- live gigs over there. It's all on there as as VOD as well. So it's like YouTube, but sometimes I'm live. So if you go into the videos in the collections, there's a music section, there's a section for each of the the games I've played, there's the the Halloween special, all sorts of good stuff. So yeah, give all of that a look. And of course, patreon.com forward slash Pip, where you can support for less than the price of a cup of coffee a month or a pint a month. So if you enjoy this podcast and think, if I saw Pip in the street, I'd buy him a drink, then uh, that's a good way to do it because it also helps pay everyone else involved in the podcast. So yeah, but speaking of the podcast, let's get on with it. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 533, and we're talking psychedelics with Andy Mitchell. I'm here today with Andy Mitchell. How are you, sir? I'm all right, thanks, Scoobius. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Excited to talk. But before we get into stuff, how's everything going? Where are you in your in your life, in your head, in all of these things? How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I, I, I left. I was working in hospital for years in London, and it just got a bit much for me. So I took a sabbatical about three years ago, and I've literally just not stopped traveling around the world for three years. And I, Love it. about three months ago, I landed in Oxford, in a suburban Oxford, which is quite confusing to someone that's just been bouncing around. Yeah. So everyone's very, very polite here, and there's not much action on the streets compared to other places. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we'll get into this because you talk about it in the book, but kind of what, I guess, what initially inspired you to go off exploring a little bit? Well, there's a professional answer and there's a personal answer. The, thing, yeah. the, the professional answer was that I've been working in neurology and neurosurgery for like over a decade. And in, it was in a big hospital in London. And, you know, on the one hand, there's the state of the NHS. On the other hand, there's neurology where people just tend to get worse rather than better. I mean, mm. some people make recoveries, but there's a lot of attrition. And there's a lot of things that we do in terms of rehab that just doesn't work. So, you know, it takes its toll on, on clinicians. And I became interested for my both personally and professionally in meditation. And so I applied for a sabbatical to my boss and I got a year to go off and study uh, how meditation might be adapted to work as a treatment for people with different forms of neurological conditions like dementia or MS or Parkinson's, whether mm. they could, we, we could use adapted 
meditation techniques to help them psychotherapeutically. So she gives me a year to go off and off I go to Southeast Asia and I, I kind of get into the middle of it and I realise that it's me that needs the uh, intervention, not the patients. Yeah. And I get a real taste for it and I get a taste for not working in a giant institution. I, I, I did, I'm still working, I end up working in a hospital in, in Northern India called in Varanasi, a children's hospital. So I've still got that part of me going, but I just really enjoy the freedom of, you know, just not having to go to work every day, not being told what to do and enriching other parts of my life, which frankly had gone on hold for 15 years while I'd been, you know, working over hours as, in a hospital. So as an outcome of that, I started writing and I wrote a couple of books and they did quite well. And then uh, my publishers at Penguin said, we think you'd be a good person to take on the psychedelic industry and the psychedelic movement as it stands. So, so they came to me about a year and a half ago. And how did you take that comment? <laughs> yeah. How did you feel when they decided that it was a good fit for you? It, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I think the reason they did it is that I've got, the way that I uh, relate to the world is on the one hand, I like to engage, what we'll say, like a, it, with quite a broad intellectual spectrum of things. So I've got a background in neuroscience and in psychology, but I've also, much earlier on in my life, I did a lot of uh, literature and philosophy mm -hmm. and anthropology. So there's like quite a broad spectrum of interests. And psychedelics tends to get siloed into very narrow disciplines. Like you're either a neuroscientist looking at the action of X drug on X part of the brain, or you're a psychotherapist that's interested in how to set up a room and an integration session to maximize your mental health recovery. It's just, and it sort of gets siloed into yeah. specialties. But anyone who's taken them knows that, you know, it's just way too messy and way too fluid to be constrained by one particular way of thinking about it. So I think there was that. That was part of the reason that they asked me, that I had this breadth relatively. But also, I just, ever since taking psychedelics, so it's a long story, but I took quite a lot of psychedelics in my teens and then stopped taking all drugs for 25 years. But I think taking them early on shaped the way that I saw the world. And so it comes out in my writing, just as it does in lots of art and cultural artefacts, that people are making strange connections and writing about things in strange ways or imaging things in strange ways or making music in strange ways because they engaged at some point with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And I think there was already a quite psychedelic feel to the way I was writing. So I think there was that combination of things. Yeah. And there's one more thing is that in publishing terms, Michael Pollan came out with How to Change Your Mind in 2018. Michael mm -hmm. Pollan's this giant behemoth in American publishing that has basically brought millions and millions of baby boomers through the last 20 years in terms of how to live in accordance with nature, particularly in the food you eat and how, how you prepare your garden. And, you know, a lot of middle class and literate Americans trust Michael Pollan with their spiritual lives, you know. Mm -hmm. And 2018, he writes a book where he, for the first time, consumes psychedelic medicines. And he writes a very comprehensive book about how these medicines can not only improve your mental health, they can help you flourish. And here's the science for it. And trust me, I'm reliable. I've never done anything naughty in my life. And these drugs are amazing. That was 2018. And since 2018, we've just had five years of the most gargantuan explosion across mm. the field of psychedelics. And it's even called the Michael Pollan effect. There's, you know, billions of venture capitals poured into it. People, scientists making all sorts of claims. Everybody from your mother to uh, your cleaner is microdosing on the things. And it's a lot of it's linked with this, this book that came out in 2018. So the publisher says, come on. Let's go and let, let, we won't smash the psychedelic hype, but let's let's at least raise some questions about it. Let's be a bit more sceptical about what's going on at the moment. And I like being sceptical, I guess. So that, that was another reason. Yeah, and I love all of that. I, I would say, again, I relate m massively in that. So I've previously co-hosted a podcast called Say Why to Dr Drugs with Dr. Susie Gage. And it's Dr. Susie Gage's podcast. Their role on it is as the as someone who studies the effects of recreational dr uh, drugs, my role was someone who's done most recreational drugs in my youth. So it was the experience there. But I relate massively because I've I stopped completely. I've not done any in 25 years. And what I would say on the Michael Pollan thing is 
I don't know if someone who's just done drugs for the first time is the right person to to necessarily write a, a complete guide on it or, or an unchallenged guide on it. I much prefer the idea of someone who has done them, stopped, had time to grow, had time to see the effects, had time to, to feel the, the positives or negatives, and then come back with a more analytical mind. Because psychedelics are the drug that quite literally blow your mind the first time you take them. It's a religious experience. And you maybe need a bit of space and time to take that in and to figure it out and to to come down as such. But one of the things I was excited about when I was reading about your book in the pre-release stuff was the scepticism. Because again, I'm very much, the, my favourite drugs are psychedelics. The, the, the drugs that I feel have shaped me as a person are psychedelics. However, this boom, I'm always cautious of these things. We saw it, in my opinion, I think a great parallel is... CBD. It was really exciting when the benefits of CBD started to come out. Very quickly, CBD was the fucking cure for everything. And literally any any ailment you'd mention, people would be, have you you tried CBD? And all sorts of variations of CBD, variations of strength, variations of types, all these kind of things. And I'm always sceptical and stuff like that when something becomes a cure-all rather than a, right, house, what how tested is this and what's the science behind it rather than it being a magic drug? So I was excited to hear of someone approaching it openly but critically as such. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I think my scepticism, again, it's got, it had two dimensions. Scepticism partly because I got quite mangled by drugs in my mm. early 20s to the point where I worried about my sanity in my, my ability to regulate myself because it just got out of control and I was using drugs to medicate you know, early traumatic experiences. So then 25 years clean and sober and thinking about engaging with psychedelics. And so there's a, there's quite a lot of just emotional fear about the idea mm. of, as you say, you know, getting in and getting your mind blown again. And I might feel like I'm much more solid and grounded, but nonetheless, you know, if you look, if you dig in the literature now, there's plenty of evidence for adverse experiences happening, even in the safest yeah. clinic room. So, so, there's the, so there's that side of it. The, the larger part of the scepticism was just an intellectual one. That took, even this, before I'd started again, that took many forms. I mean, working in mental health, one comes very quickly to understand that the, the model we have of psychiatry is just moribund and on its knees and that there's been no novel drug innovation really for 40 or 50 years to treat most of the conditions. So when something comes along and it's green, and people were taking it thousands of years ago, and it, it's got these transformative effects, you just start smelling bullshit. You just start, I mean, that part of you that thinks, well, we're always suffering, and it's suffering's getting worse, and we're always moving from one mental health epidemic to another mental health epidemic. Of course, something's going to turn up that is the solution to that. And of mm. course, even more, of course, it's not going to be the solution. It's, it's gonna, it, might move, it might move things in a very different direction for a while. But I was just very sceptical of that. And then that scepticism only increased when I started looking at the science and looking at the kind of corporatization of it and mm-hmm. looking at the kind of new ageism around a lot of the science and that sort of thing. So, so I was sceptical beforehand. And then I jumped in and, and just briefly, my, my book was sold on the basis that I was going to do 10 different substances in 10 different locations. I mean, we should get the name of the book, T- 10 Trips, yeah. New Reality of Psychedelics in there, really. so I've got it right here. Look, here we go. This is it. 10 Trips, the new... Snap. Yeah, with a giant, <laughs> giant David Lynch floating strawberry, which I, I had nothing to do with, but they the, apparently they call it a wolf whistle in the art department. I love a it. dog whistle. It's dog like whistle. you don't know why you're responding to it, but you just want to move yeah. towards it somehow. Yeah. Anyway, so so yeah, 10 trips because because I wanted to have a nice time traveling around the world getting high, but also because I wanted to sample the different uses in the current psychedelic renaissance mm-hmm. from so starting with getting inside a neuroimaging scanner with a huge dose of ketamine all the way to taking ayahuasca and wachuma in the Amazon. Uh, with indigenous, you know, endangered in- indigenous tribes, and then everything in between, from recreational to psychotherapeutic uses, and so that was the that was the hook for the book. And I ended up having because of COVID, I just compressed it, uh, my expedition into sort of 
pretty much about 60 days and I did 40 trips in 60 days yeah. uh, with about 15 to 20 different substances. And it was like an endurance marathon. It was just like I was on, I was just staggering around, not quite holding it together for some of I was going to say, you highlight quite early on that it might not have been as well planned as, as it, or, or the best <laughs> way of doing it as it maybe should right. be. Yeah, 40 trips in 60 days is a lot. It's a lot. And I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm being a little bit, uh, what's the word, delinquent about reporting it because I did take quite a lot of care and I had a trip sitter and I, I knew yeah. uh, when I was using guides, I knew quite a lot about the guides. I'd been researching them. I'd been linked up by reliable people in the psychedelic industry. So it wasn't quite as Hunter S. Thompson as I'm suggesting. But I think I'll just bang on for a minute. I just felt this oscillation moving from sort of quite deep scepticism to the experiences themselves, which were often unbelievably uh, rich in texture and and moving and dazzling in their religiosity or in their sort of sheer creativity. So moving between trying to uh, make sense of and digest these experiences and turn them into from experiences into something that might be enhancing in terms of behaviour or self-regulation going forward. So that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, just kind of taking in the whole shit show that surrounds psychedelics and the mm-hmm. sort of corporatization of them and the way that the way that people are might be abused or manipulated by psychedelic experiences. So I would say on this side of it, and I've not, since I finished writing the book, I've not taken any psychedelics. So that's nearly a year without any of it. I've still got this kind of deep scepticism about whether I'll ever use them again yeah. uh, and the way that they're being used. But I would say that it's a scepticism that's now much more nuanced than the scepticism I had beforehand. And I mean, we can talk about that or anything else. But Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I, uh, for me, the reason I don't think I would take psychedelics now is almost the opposite of of what you were saying of holding off. Like I only had good times as a youngster and I kind right. of got off, I got out unscathed. And again, I had friends who had rough times. It was one of them where I was like, that's gone well. Maybe I won't go back there. But also I think psychedelics are something that you can't hide from. And we'll talk more about set and setting and where you are mentally and all these other things. But psychedelics are something that you can't hide from. And in my youth, I was almost boringly pragmatic with it. Before I did any psychedelics, I read a lot of Timothy Leary and his whole kind of belief that a bad trip is your mind panicking and trying to claw back to reality. But his big belief or one of the things he pushed at the time was that there's nothing, there's no reason to feel that what we see day to day is any more or less real than what we see on psychedelics it's the psychedelics simply change the way your eyes interpret light essentially and in my youth I fully believed that therefore I always had a wonderful time more grown up I don't think I can kid myself that I fully believe that anymore (laughs) I don't think it is simply a slight difference in how we perceive things I think you know I don't know I'm more firmly on well reality is, is reality and the trips are something else so yeah there's a certain nerves that I would be more susceptible to having a, a a rough time but bad trips are something you kind of you're looking into in this as well right for sure and i i mean i think just as you say that as you say those things mm-hmm. about your experience it sounds like you've got an internal compass for why not taking psychedelics might be a good idea but if you run into someone that's running a retreat center in psychedelics in california they're going to say to you, that's because you're closed off from yourself. Yeah. And what you really need to do yeah. is bring out your inner child and put yourself through this learning experience because it'll be different and you'll learn and you can quite easily start to be persuaded. Yeah. And I think that's a real danger because the people that are doing the persuading are not without bias. Even if their bias is only the fact that they've had transformative experience on psychedelics, they're not really thinking of you when they're saying it. They're thinking about how they would like you to be in their minds. And that kind of suggestibility, as you say, with set and setting, as soon as you've got a psychedelic in you, you become hyper-suggestible. And if someone's guiding you and they've got a very different worldview from you, or or a similar one, but it's theirs. You're really capable of being putty in their hands of in the hands of their worldview in quite dramatic ways. And then who knows how long that'll last once the trip is over? Because there's a lot of research about how. I mean, I'm just in Oxford because there's a conference on bioethics mm-hmm. in psychedelics. How do you give informed consent if you're a patient to take a pill and go with a therapist? 
when you've no idea what person's going to emerge from the other side of that trip. You might, you might, for example, believe in uh, an alien entity on the other side of that trip, even though beforehand you're sober and you'd like to iron your socks. You might come out of the experience attributing the fact that you are who you are to a, a green basketball that's got a mouth and, you know, antlers coming out of its head. It's possible. So how do you give informed consent to something like that? Mm. And then, as, as you suggested with your question, it might be, as it was for me on one night, it might be that you are just about to have, without equal, the worst night of your entire life. The kind of night where if you had a gel ignite strapped around your neck and you had a button that could stop your head from working, you would definitely press it. Yeah. Because, because what you're going through feels like the most intolerable thing that you've ever experienced. Mm. Now, that might later turn into something useful uh, as you reflect back on it, but it might stay the worst night of your life. And again, how do you give, in, how do you give informed consent when you don't know that that might be happening to you, mm. you know, in two hours' time? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one to find that balance. And one of the things, again, I think at the moment, it sounds like you've come out of this quite anti psychedelics but i don't think that's the case i think it's anytime you're expressing that there is nuance people see that like in 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 the modern world because of social media you're either pro or you're against whereas you can be pro but with questions you can be against but with nuance you know but these things don't tend to sit together here's the thing and i think this is probably my personality but it's also probably something to do with the general discourse on psychedelics is that if you're sat in front of me and you're coming out with a load of blandishments and idealizations about psychedelics and how it's going to transform the world and obliterate trauma and make us all hyperproductive and get along with each other, then as someone that's listening to you, I'm going to want to raise objections. Yeah. Similarly, if, if you're sat there going, they're a load of nonsense, they do nothing other than uh, help people escape reality and, you know, they, they brainwash us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to butt in with the other side. And, and part of that's my own contrarian nature. But I think there's something about psychedelics themselves, right? Whether you're, if you, if you think about the different ways that people try and model them. So you've got neuroscientists trying to say they cause the brain to do this. You've got psychotherapists saying they cause the person to be like this. You've got new age priests saying they're going to, revolutionize your relationship with X. And then you've got shamans saying that they're going to affiliate you with a jaguar or an anaconda. And then you've even got psychonautical analyst, uh, anarchic delinquents saying they're going to flip the Vs at the culture at large. And that's why they're important. Whoever you are, you're trying to shape psychedelics to do what you want them to do. And the, the psychedelics really have got this amazing, almost non-equaled ability to start reflecting the person that's doing the describing of them except that's not the psychedelics that's you that's that's you that's just trying to shape them so when when i started the book i had this idea that psychedelics were this multifaceted jewel and that depending on your perspective you saw a different side of the jewel but that implies that there's a single jewel and it can be discovered and by the end of the book i thought that's just the wrong metaphor for psychedelics what psychedelics are is like water itself so we, uh, science, science, we know we know what the chemistry and the physics of water is. We can write mm-hmm. about it. Uh, we know what the behaviour is under certain conditions of water. We know what it tastes like to an extent. We know some of its properties. But in terms of working out what the shape of water is, we don't know. We don't know what the poetry of water is. We only know the shape of water depending on... If we, we can only see it, really, if we put it in a container. And then what we see is not the water itself, but the shape of the container. Well, that's what's happening with psychedelics, you know. Mm. The, the, the psychiatrists want psychedelics to be this shape, so they put it in a living room and get an, a, a soft-spoken therapist to guide you through, and you won't have depression at the end of it. Or, you know, and the, and the shaman will uh, tell you that you, you were what you really need to do is go and buy a chunk of the Amazon because you're dissociated in your current environment in suburban Oxford. Each person's got their own container for it, and psychedelics are brilliant at looking like they're the thing that they've been talking about, whilst at the same time they're tricking you and slipping the net and turning up over here when you think they're over here. And there's something, there is something truly remarkable about psychedelics in that way. Yeah, I, I mean, hearing you, you say all of that, it makes me wonder, what are your thoughts on where we are with, I guess, modern science? Because it does feel as if 
it's science versus religion or spirituality or whatever these other things where particularly on a subject like this it needs to be all of them together it needs to be be looking at all of these like when you were listing the different people who will have different views it's like well there's truths in all of them and and if we could look Absolutely. at them as if we could look at them as a whole then we could probably find an answer but if we continue to be no my version of it's right no my versions of it right then it's like oh we're not going to find out anything then cool totally <laughs> Totally. I mean, it, it sort of creates tribes, psychedelics, mm. and, and like everything in the culture, it gets increasingly polarised by factionalism. Yeah. And that's what you've got in, in psychedelics. Even though scientists say we're not anything like the New Age bunch over there who are trying to make a religion out of it, you find that quite, like John, John Hopkins, which was one of the major universities for the research of psychedelics in America, the, the people that run it are very interested, not in just curing mental health, but elevating the spiritual flavour of, of the normal population. Mm. So they've got a kind of quite explicit secular spiritual agenda to make people love one another more. Well, that's not science, you know, that's yeah. not science. Yeah. It might be a good ambition, but it's not science. Similarly, the science itself, the people who are doing it really want the science to prove certain things that they hold true to themselves about psychedelics. Yeah. And again, that leads to kind of biases and bad methodologies. And again, that's so it's it's not science. These are people that just have got too much skin in the game. They don't want yeah. to report that psychedelics aren't working because they may believe it personally. They may also have huge cash incentives from some venture capitalist that went to the Amazon and found himself when he drank a bunch of ayahuasca. So, you know, the, the whole thing is messy and complicated and starts to feel a bit like a kind of Disneyland rather than... Uh, yeah. some, you know, clean, ancient, plant-based saviour. It's interesting, though, because that's essentially the history of science, isn't it? It's 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 proving what you thought before you started rather than rather than finding out. Often it'll be that kind of, here, I, I want to prove my belief on what this is, and therefore you push further and further down that route, it seems. Right, yeah. I think Simone Weil said that science is, is really just, just like the fashion industry. And we're all looking to find the most chic, yeah. broad-brimmed hat to walk down the street with. And right now, psychedelic science is the cool thing, and it and it's got a huge amount of idealization about what it can do. And and I think one one thing about like I started off by saying what you know the published partly why the publishers approached me is that I've got quite an eclectic background. Blah blah blah. Well, I think psychedelics require science to interface with other disciplines like anthropology, like sociology, like what it is for the indigenous cultures to what, what psychedelics mean, for example, to tribes that have been taking them for 500 years or a thousand years, how it mm -hmm. changes their relationship to the worldview rather than extracting a substance and sticking someone in a clinic room and putting it through their veins and saying, now be well with this. You know, I think th th there just needs to be as you suggest, a kind of interdisciplinarianism about the way we think about these things. And it's not just an intellectual thing. It's just because the, the people that we want in general to be in society are people that are tolerant of difference and capable of speaking across and relating to different people, you know. Yeah, but that's, that's, the, that's the conflict, isn't it, I guess? Because you also talk about in the book how there's certainly an area of science who feel there's a credibility in having not tried any of this stuff themselves like like there's scientists who are taking the third person view and doing this test but then that's countered by and this is a weird thing to say now because I think podcasting is a big influence on this like a negative influence on this there's the other side that's purely anecdotal and not scientific at all and you, you guys like Joe Rogan really speaking a lot of bringing the 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 ayahuasca trip into the the public consciousness and st a, a lot like that. And it's like, well, these are purely anecdotal stories and experiences without any scientific, without any testing or or parameters or or things things like that. So, how do we meet in the middle? I mean, the I feel like I'm I'm setting you up to say we meet with. 10 trips by Andrew Mitchell. <laughs> but yeah, how do we meet in the middle? Because again, I think both discredit each other. I think I, at first, 
hear people like Rogan talking about ayahuasca trips and I find it fascinating. And then very quickly I go, all right, well, I've just heard 10 different people who are just professing this to be the solution to everything, but it's so personal and individual. And then on the other side, as said, if it is just a dusty old old scientist who doesn't have any real experience of it, it's easy to question that too. Yeah. I mean, I think as, as as you say this, I think someone should do a big study about the influence of massive American podcasters on the psychedelic renaissance. Because yeah. the, as you said, there's some... When, when Rogan and Tim Ferriss started mm-hmm. talking it up, it had not become institutionalised. It was countercultural in the 60s. It got banned. And then people started taking them again and talking about their experiences in an interesting way, maybe, say, 10 years ago. And as you say, though, at that point, it was still talked about the set and setting was a key part of that because they were talking about going into a Peruvian jungle and having this whole ceremony. And then it's when it's been snapped out of that. And it's like, oh, you can do it up the road in LA or you can do it, you know, at this retreat. Right, because because people have always been, I mean, a lot of people have been taking a lot of drugs ever since the, you know, the 1970s, but there's been no uh, romance to it. There's been nothing intellectually or emotionally exciting about it. It's just been, you know, kids on YouTube or homeless people on the streets. There's no chic to it. But Joe Rogan, for example, becomes a kind of great conquistador going down to South America, doing something that is not delinquent, but is transformative for him and is part of his general biohacking of the universe and, you know, his plan to live forever and such like. And of course, it gets huge amounts of traction. But as soon as then science and commercialism gets hold of it, it starts to change the the meaning of the gesture. And already, 10 years later, the Amazon's awash with, you know, bogus ayahuasca tourism and people Mm -hmm. just going on their bucket list tours to do, you know, see Niagara Falls, take an ayahuasca with Shipibo, had sex with a dolphin or whatever it is, you know. (laughs) know, And and the, the meaning of the whole thing has just changed dramatically. And psychedelics will just get relegated a bit into the mainstream, or will be kind of messed up. We'll, we've just got this habit of messing things up, and mm. things that need to be thought about and treated with a degree of caution and skepticism and fear and reverence and wonder just become, you know, part of the general capitalist pill taking. Yeah, exactly. Again, and and because of your 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 work history, I guess, you're going to be very aware of big pharma is the easy kind of terminology and phrase. But again, when these things do become big, big business, and there's a, I think you mentioned the prediction that by 2028, psychedelics will be like a $6 billion industry or something crazy like that. As soon as they become big business, it's, you've got to question everything, right? You've you've got to question all motives and all. it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm not, someone that's prone to conspiracy thinking but with big pharma it's just you just have to yeah you just have to think conspiratorially and you know it started off with small ngos getting funding to do some good research on psychedelics some important research god knows we've only just really begun neuroscience and psychotherapeutic research into you'd never know it because of all the massive claims that have been made but really we're just beginning uh, the, the the research but it's, so it started off with well-meaning NGOs, and now you've just you know, the big farmer waits and bides its time, and then just buys up all the NGOs. Mm-hmm. And last week, a, a very well-known pharmaceutical company just acquired about three of the largest NGOs. Right. You know, so it's it's happening, and it's going to continue to happen. I mean, I don't want to get into it too much, but a lot of the thing is you take the molecular structure of these native substances like ayahuasca or like mushrooms or like. Um, Wachuma. And you ju- all you have to do is you just patent one aspect of the molecular structure. You pay some money and then no one else can touch that. That's yours. Or you patent the dose that it's taken with yeah. or the, the means of the dosing or the music that's played while it's dosing. There's so many ways of cheating the law on this to make money out of it. And then all you get is the FDA or the NICE guidelines say, yes, that particular way of doing it is the way that uh, we've got evidence for. And hundreds of millions of pounds are 
made out of that those particular synergies. And and again, it's mad that it's that it's even possible to do that with things that have been around for so long, that have been done Ugh. in different communities for thousands of years. But now it's like, oh, it's ours. It's ours now. I mean, that's just that's the history of the Western world, is it not? <laughs> Find something and then patent it. It's the history of the Western world, and and it's like, I mean, I think like maybe maybe climate change is the biggest narrative under which we all exist at the moment. Maybe it is. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, psychedelics, in the, the science of psychedelics is, has tried to push the idea that taking ayahuasca or, some, or, or mushrooms in high doses is going to connect us with nature in a profound way. And I can say for myself that that's, that happened during many of my trips is that I just wanted to hug trees and do a whole lot more with nature than I've ever felt inclined to before. So psych- psychedelics... Those as, poor dolphins. Those poor dolphins. <laughs> the psychedelics then as this sort of antidote to global warming. Yeah. And yet exactly the opposite is really happening with the commercialization, the patenting, the kind of taking away from unspoiled indigenous traditions, yeah. their technologies and then making tons of money and then people flocking to Peru and crapping all over the Amazon as they drunkenly searching for their authentic high. Yeah. We've, we've just got a habit of fucking things up. I mean, it's just, I mean, I say it wryly, but we really have. We really do. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth noting then that it was an almost unplanned initially ayahuasca journey that you had that kind of convinced you on all this. So you, as you say, you had been clean for, for 20 plus years and then you yeah, were kind of, you met someone and they kind of talked you into it a bit and you had an amazing experience, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, exactly that. And it wasn't just like one conversation. I was I was in California at the time and I was there for a couple of months and I met this person who turned out to be someone that led ayahuasca ceremonies up and down the West Coast of America. And she really knew what she was talking about. She knew what the science and the pitfalls of the science. She'd worked with hundreds of people. Uh, over a decade. She trained in Peru and she was sceptical in some ways herself. And just because she was sceptical, I started to trust her and I started to... So then I find myself on the other side of the decision, having phoned my AA sponsor and got the green light. And there's something just remarkable about how psychedelics tend to give... You know, you talked about your experiences uh, as an 18-year-old. Well, what I would say is that now you've got at least twice as much experience as you had when you were 18. And psychedelics just find a way of giving you the story of your life, your birth, your first kiss, your 18th birthday the loss of a loved one, your birth of your child, your own death, particularly your own death over and over again. They take these iconic threshold moments in your life and the life of the people around you and they re-spin it as this unbelievably powerful and strange story of which you get to be both audience, victim, participant, director over and over again. And it, and it just for that moment, for the moment that you're in it, all of the conventions of your habitual thinking and feeling are scrambled in the wildest possible way. And you are participating again with the story of your life in an original and yet very familiar way. And there's something truly awe-inspiring about that. And it's, mm. it's just like your life has been turned into a piece of art and you're watching it and you're somehow responsible for it. And yet there's something greater than you that's doing the creating. And there's something about how that right-sizes you and transforms you that's, that, you know, it, it still makes me shiver when I think about it. Yeah, and I think there's, I think reality is a really interesting subject and topic and, and, and one that fits here perfectly. And this is going to be a very loose and unplanned question, but um, I, I recently did some shamanic journeying. Some friends of mine were doing it. I'd been through a bit of a rough time. And it was really interesting because it really hit me and moved me and was really powerful. And part of my scepticism, I mean, I went to an all-boys Catholic school, so that kind of made me sceptical against religion very early on. And part of my scepticism on religion was, well, I'm a realist. I don't believe that there's this big man in the sky or this or that and all these other things. And one of the things I found with this shamanic journey was it doesn't really matter if what I saw or what I went through was real or not. What I learnt was real and the impact of it is real and continues 
to be real. I had some really moving and beautiful realizations. Now, do I believe I went through a hole under a tree and met my spirit animal and we floated about for for a bit? I don't know. (laughs) But I know that the things I learned in that moment were really beneficial. So how do you feel on the importance of how real what you see like I touched upon the fact that I, I my belief as a teen was that I was comfortable with the fact that what I see on psychedelics is as real as anything else it doesn't matter how important is the reality of any of it and how important is the outcome yeah I suppose I want to I'd want to sort of before moving on to psychedelics I just want to say that the way that we know reality itself is various mm-hmm. we know things in different ways and we tend to get stuck in our knowing it just seems to be a feature of the way our brains are set up is that we fall into habits. Like you said, you went to see a shaman because you were you were stuck in some way. Something was difficult. And one way of thinking about difficulty is that we're just stuck in a way of knowing uh, where we think that newness is not possible because we're so familiar with our own yeah. stories about how the world is. Yeah. But we, also, we don't need psychedelics to tell us that that's just a function of the way that we're seeing things. We know that we know from that life itself could offer up anything at any moment, either by a deus ex machina, something just unusual happening, or because we suddenly find ourselves looking at something differently because we met someone or something different happened, you know, and suddenly the stuckness looks small and unstuck, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think more profoundly than that, our ways of knowing are framed by the way that the culture is and the way that science in particular tells us to relate to things as separate, that there are objects and there are subjects and uh, everything is explicable and nothing is mysterious. And if it is mysterious, it's only because we haven't got around to explaining it yet. And then you know, I'm, I'm, I'm painting a picture where, uh, where ca- and capitalism offers us up what we need rather than us having to rely on what we feel uh, about what we need, etc. So reality is just getting served up to us in two-dimensional McDonald's form. Mm -hmm. And we know that there are other ways of thinking about reality without going into psychedelics. But for many, taking a psychedelic is the easiest way to experience a radically different relationship to what is real. And typically, you might have experiences that are total bullshit and you believe them fully, like that you are a jaguar or or another way, or perhaps that your father sexually abused you. They may have nothing to do with reality, but now you believe them fully. And I think that scepticism is useful up against those. But what you generally get as a principle is it's showing yourself in relationship to your world and the people around you in a novel way. And it gives you a kind of principle of fluidity, of not taking anything as concrete and literal and gospel, that newness is always available. And psychedelics give you a kind of crash course in what newness might look like, both good and ill. Mm. And and it's fascinating. I, I find, as, as you can see, I find the whole subject absolutely fascinating. I guess, again, I'm conscious to to not kind of do the, tell us what you figured out, basically sum up the book in five minutes. No, you know, I'm conscious of not doing anything like that. But I think it's really interesting that a lot of what you've spoken about with nuance and with respect in the history seems to imply to me that we shouldn't really be pulling these things apart. Part of the risk of psychedelics is countered by being guided by someone who knows how to guide you, who knows how to look after you and have you in the right place, rather than we get clinical and it's just, here you go, take this and think for a bit and it will probably solve everything because that's where the uh, the dark outcomes can come. So I guess where did you land with the kind of importance of set set and setting having tried all these different scenarios and and situations oh yeah i mean there's a lot to say on it but i think i mean one thing for me just because of my nature my favorite experience was with indigenous tribe in the mountains in south america taking a mescaline based uh it's called wachuma a mescaline based psychedelic at dawn and walking in silence for 14 hours over the mountains and stopping stopping every hour, say, for some music and singing and silence. And for most of those 14 hours, I was just crying my eyes out. And crying with mescaline is the kind of equivalent of puking with ayahuasca. You cry not because you're sad, you just cry because you're seeing reality 
with clarity. And it's yeah. not distorted or psychedelic in a cliched way. You're just seeing things as they really are in this. They've got a quality of thisness that's just jumping out ecstatically and crying because why am I not normally looking at the world in this way yeah. and respecting and feeling connected to it? So that that for me was, I think that was the most profound. If I had a drug of choice, you know, everyone, I, I used to have a beer of choice. I used to like uh, my drug, you know, my acid like this and my ecstasy like this. Well, it, my drug of choice would definitely be Wachuma, this mescaline-based thing. I mean, the one that makes you cry with positivity rather than puke with positivity is definitely the easy choice <laughs> over uh, was like, the I two could, there. I, I, I could not figure out why this water was just kept streaming out of my eyes because I just really wanted to tell the world how much I loved it. Right, There was no sense of loss. It was just, oh my God, it was amazing. But it was just an experience, you know, it's just an experience. That's the other thing I'm telling myself. We can make gods out of these experiences. It's not like, you know, you've got, you, you have an experience of your child being born and you might cry at that and you might think of it as the most important thing that you've ever done. And you might, and a lot of the psychedelic research says that taking 5-MeO and DMT is one of the top three experiences in my life, but it's just an experience. You've got 20 years or 30 years or 40 years in a relationship with the mm. child that was born if things go well. Whereas you've just got 15 minutes on some dude's rug in the, in Santa Cruz with <laughs> yeah. the other one. And, you know, the chances are in 10 years' time you'll go, well, that was a big experience, but it won't change your life in any way, whereas the kid probably has. Anyway, mm. so that's so that's, I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. I, but just going back to your question about what was... There's a tribe in the north of uh, Colombia called the Kogi tribe. They're sort of spiritual titans. I'm, I got really into visiting monasteries in different religions. Well, these guys, they, they live at 4,000 metres and they've not really been colonised by the Spanish. And they've got this belief that somehow nature is unfolding in every moment and revealing to us what the future holds in every single moment. And we can find out what the future is going to be by looking into our bodies or looking at the flight path of birds or the taste of the wind. And they're so connected to every single moment because of this cosmology, this philosophy of how nature is moving through cycles and is replicated. And this, it's immensely complicated and I won't pretend to understand it, but they don't take psychedelics. They, they use coca leaves just because it attunes them more deeply to the movements in their body vis-a-vis -vis the movements outside of them. But I, there's something, you know, psychedelics literally means to make the mind manifest. Well, every single moment of these guys' lives, well, they're not high at all. The coke is just tuning things up. Every single moment of their life is a kind of psychedelic moment of the world unfolding in its possibilities, sending messages that are received gratefully, that payments are made. There's always gratitude before any action. There's always a sense of the multi-leveled nature of every action that they do, whether, whether they're burying their dead or they're conceiving a new child or they're eating food. It's all folded in. It's all part of this immensely complicated, layered, psychedelic experience. And I thought, well, yeah. reality is already psychedelic for these people. And yeah. they don't need to, you know, sit in a room and drop something in order to yeah. feel that it's just unfolding in that way so i think that that would be my take home is that i think psychedelics has really helped me see just how psychedelic uh sober non-drug taking life can be if you if your disposition is set up in that way it's fascinating it's fascinating they don't need moments because it's 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 all there it's all it's all the moment not to try and you know get you back on the source but um Hearing you talk about that mescaline <laughs> trip there, I'd love, I'd love to hear the effects of you doing mescaline in a grimy club in East London, in a scientific lab, walking in a mountain, and see how again to see because it's always fascinating. That's been my kind of belief on this for a long time. Is so much of this initial boom in it was because you're going on this pilgrimage to Peru to go into the jungle mm. to do this and it adds mm. so much weight and importance to it that you might not get you know as I used to do on some swings up the road in Basildon and we're just we're just taking a load of LSD <laughs> and it was still this spiritual thing but it's it probably would have been a f completely different experience in that situation and I f I love the idea of keeping the drug the same but changing the the situation yeah and seeing and seeing the impact of that 
that's the kind of science we need to see, right? Yeah. <laughs> Rather than these uh, laboratory things. No, I yeah. agree with you. I've kind of answered my cu- own curiosity about psychedelics, but so that's for you to do. Yeah. But what? Yeah. But Go what ahead. I would. But what <laughs> I would say. What I would say about it is that there's something about dying, which is such a common theme in psychedelic journeys. Mm-hmm. And what dying metaphorically, in the sense that you are coming up against a force that you just cannot. You cannot get round. You cannot cheat. In fact, it's not even outside of you. It's actually you. And that's the feeling of death on psychedelics, is that your best shot at avoiding and controlling and calling the shots are just kites in the wind because the thing's absolutely at the centre of you. And it's only by surrendering to it. Fundament- and even to say, I surrender, you're already saying I, so you've already lost that one. And it's going to find a way of making you surrender in the most profound way. And I think that can be a bad trip, but it can also be a fantastic trip. Often trips have got these chasms and abysses in it, and we all end up hugging each other at the end. And mm. we don't think of them as bad trips, but there's just micro moments where your life is on the line or your existence or your identity is on the line. That's why they call it ego death. And I think there's just something about that training for death, and we don't get it in our culture at all, but it's built into the indigenous tradition about coming up against your own limits, effectively coming up against this largest question that you're going to die, and dying really means that you've lost everything. You really have lost everything. And one's capacity to absorb that whilst one's alive, psychedelics furnishes that. And I, and I think, so going back to your question, that, of course, is the kind of mother load of, for me about what psychedelics are. And because I will tend to forget my own mortality every day and, and it builds over weeks, and we, I'm likely to go back to psychedelics once every six months just as a way of tuning up my death preparedness, you know, as it were. And I think it's not just about the moment that resides X number of days or weeks or years down the line. It's about the kind of deaths that I need on a daily basis in order to keep myself on the straight and narrow, if it means sacrificing uh, something for the sake of someone else or not punishing myself because that's really, you know, that's really, if I'm being self-critical, it's because I've decided I know best in some way. So just, you know, the kind of mini deaths that we need to prepare us for the larger one, as it were. I love it. And I think you've, you've, you've articulated something really interesting there. And I wonder if the reason these psychedelic trips and these journeys have been a part of certain cultures for thousands of years and are this new revelation in the West is because of our relationship with death, because of the taboo of death in the West, the fact that when someone dies, it's all hidden from us immediately. Someone comes and takes the body away, it's all hidden, and then, you know, we bury them quickly, all this kind of thing. Whereas in so many other cultures, like, there's there's tribes that every year on the anniversary of the death, they dig the body up and they have a celebration with the body. There's cultures where you sit with the body for X amount of time and death isn't this hidden thing and this hidden away thing. It is an accepted part of life and not not necessarily a horrible part of, of life. Like, there's a few different things that, weird bit of information, if a few different things that me and my brother have watched with my dad that are different cultures reactions to death and their different practices and traditions and my dad will always kind of instinctively go oh oh no I don't like that oh that's that's unpleasant it's like that's because of how we are with death Hayley Campbell wrote an excellent book about death and one of the things that one of the experts in that came out of was that in the, the west they feel it would be beneficial to all all of us if we saw dead bodies from an earlier age because it's really damaging that for most of us, the first time we see a dead body, it's someone we love. And there's a weirdness in seeing dead bodies anyway. Add all the emotion of seeing someone you love and it not feeling like that person anymore, all these other things. That could be changed vastly if we were more familiar with how different it is when there's something that doesn't have life in it. Again, going off on a bit of a rambling tangent there, but I do think, yeah, I think it's really interesting that these that there is something in psychedelics that presents death and that could be what makes it such a new revolutionary thing in the Western world because we're well, so right. But as soon as soon as as soon as you say that, I was, I was thinking, look, they've got two PhDs now. We've got one on psychedelics and podcasts, and now you've got psychedelics and death. But as soon as you, <laughs> and I think everything you said is true about it. But as soon as you package it as this could be the revolutionary treatment, 
then it just it starts yeah. to sort of it, it it starts to fall into just another solution. You've got where, your where answer really... before you've studied it. You've got yeah. your, again, as we said earlier, you're going in with here's the result I want. Now, exactly. Prove me and, you know, right. And you can, I can just, I can just hear kind of new age retreat centres opening up their prepare for death courses with yeah. psychedelics, and it all, and people in soft voices, you know, and white sheets yeah. saying yeah, death yeah, is yeah. going to be like this, and and it makes me think that psychedelics always lead you up the garden path with this. They always. There's a guy called Sasha Shulgin who's just incredibly famous in the underground psychedelic scene because for 40 years he made novel psychedelic chemicals in his garden shed in California because he got, even though the drugs were banned, he got a special dispensation mm-hmm. from the FDA to do it. So he just spent practically 40 years inventing new psychedelics and taking them. And by rights, he, 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 he was someone that's done more death preparation than ever before. And he kept getting that it, on certain substances, he really got the willies and he'd be writing things down. It's like, I should not be, why am I so still so fucking scared of meeting my maker? I should be prepared yeah. by now, but in fact, I'm shitting myself, you know. Imagine his excitement when he got that dispensation through that basically said, yeah, you can do what you want. Imagine like, <laughs> exactly. oh, fuck, the world's about to change for me. <laughs> that must be insane. It's all illegal, but you, you go ahead, fill your boots, mate. Enjoy yourself in your and garden. And he really did. He really did fill his boots, and he had things like he had things like the driving test. And he says, "Oh, I really shouldn't have got in the car on this particular substance because I'm now seeing giant flies heading towards the windscreen, and they're really hard to avoid. They're really hard to avoid." He would use it as a science experiment, Amazing. the drive test That's and insane. the museum visit test, and things like that. He had all these weird uh, made up. Oh, the sex test. I find it really hard to make love to my wife on this heavy ketamine dose, you know. Yeah, so. I love that. These are just the tests of just an absolute record, <laughs> rather than a, we're gonna t- we're gonna we're gonna go to a museum and we're gonna yeah. we're gonna look around the museum and we're gonna t- it's like it's fucking it. brilliant. Why are they all looking at me? <laughs> Why are they all looking at me? Every statue. Because you're trying to have sex with your wife whilst in the museum. <laughs> Stop and combining the tests. Is... <laughs> exactly. And and get out of your car. Um, so, I mean, to kind of wrap things up, I guess what's ahead? This has obviously been, you know, a huge... It feels like an almost unexpected journey because, as you say, it did get truncated by the pandemic and it did, you know, it became this whole thing. What is ahead? Have you got plans for, for what you'd like to do next or what... Yeah, what's yeah. Your focus? I mean, I, I was just—I was just like with this. As I said, I was just going to this, dipping into this bioethics conference at Oxford, and I, mm. I looked at these guys, and they've like their careers, their academic careers are totally about psychedelics. I feel great that I can just dip in for eighteen months, yeah, get a big fill my boots, and then kind of dip, move on to something else. So I'm, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing another book, which is about extremophiles, people who in different ways have lived at the extremes in the culture. And there will be mm-hmm. one chapter on an African psychedelic, which is the most extreme of the psychedelics. But I'm also hopefully going to go to space with a Russian cosmonaut and wow. go and live in a cave with someone. And, that, you know, and just look at the way that different, by living at different extremes, we'd learn something about normal human function. So that I'm doing that. And then I'm doing a TV series about the interaction of AI and neurology, so wow. a drama about a technology thing. And then I'll do some clinical work in between. But I think just one thing about psychedelics is that, that it's made me feel much more like winging things and being more of an artist uh, with regard to my life and how it runs. A bad artist, admittedly, but, you know, nonetheless... No. Making it up as I go along feels like a good idea these days. I, I love it. And we're ending again on something that I, I relate to massively. I definitely feel like people often, because I, I started off in music and then I moved to broadcasting and then acting and now I'm moving into to writing and, and directing. And I definitely feel that my time on psychedelics was came at a time where the area I'm from, you're very much at school, you're meant to be aiming towards here's your career, you're going to go and work in this, this city. You're going to earn this and earn that. And I think my time on psychedelics came at just the right time that kind of made me go, no, just do what you want to do. Do what you enjoy. Do what you're drawn towards. And that's guided my whole life. And again, it's hard to say. I think it's also easy to backwards engineer these things and go, oh, this is yeah, because exactly. of the drugs, because of that. It's like, it could be that that was always in me and was always going to be my path. But 
I do think those things do. Which is, as you said, because of that tendency to backwards engineer, yeah. it's good not to make a religion out of any belief that you have about yourself. And yeah. I think psychedelics show both the tendency to make a religion out of any belief you have about yourself, but they also show you how to undo that belief as well. Yeah, I love it. Well, I appreciate you, t- you taking the time. It's been an absolute joy. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Thank you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. How fascinating was that? I love this one. I know, you know, I've always tried to have just interesting topics in there, in the episodes, as well as big name guests and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I was really pleased to, to, to get into this one. If you didn't hear the episode I did a few years back with Dr. Susie Gage, check that out. And then check, say, why to drugs out as well. Obviously, most importantly, go and buy yourself 10 trips. The book, not, you know, just go and buy yourself 10 trips. The New Reality of Psychedelics by Andy Mitchell out now. I'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.